0: Welcome to the Copkey Ride Home for Thursday, June 24th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. The growing attempts to put flavor back into our produce, because yes, apparently it left. An update on the lumber industry and what it could mean for the economy overall, and the surprisingly strange things astronauts have done with their dirty laundry, plus the introduction of NASA Tide. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. I knew that a ton of work was being done in the food engineering world to diversify and modify our produce to various ends, but what I didn't know is that the fruits and vegetables we buy at the store have been slowly getting less and less flavorful, and that there's now a push to bring the flavor back. Franco Fubini, founder of fruit and vegetable supplier Natura, told the BBC, quote, "...supermarkets started demanding that varieties have a longer shelf life. So, for example, in the case of a tomato, it has a thicker skin, so the skins don't split more easily. A tomato that perhaps ripens faster, that can absorb more water. So over time, you breed your varieties for attributes other than flavor. The flavor attribute starts falling in importance, and as nature has it, if you breed for other traits, you breed out flavor." End quote. So now many scientists are trying to crack the code to breed produce that will bring the flavor consumers and chefs increasingly want, while still ticking all the supermarkets' requirements. Like in Fubini's example, the tomato is a prime candidate for research. It was the second ever plant to have its entire genome sequenced, has a short generation time, and is the most economically important fruit crop in the world, according to Professor Harry Klee of Florida University. Quoting the BBC, plant flavor is a complex phenomenon. In the case of a tomato, it stems from the interaction of sugars, acids, and over a dozen volatile compounds derived from amino acids, fatty acids, and carotenoids. Professor Klee wants to identify the genes controlling the synthesis of the flavor volatiles and using this to produce a better-tasting tomato, end quote. Klee says he expects in another year or so they'll be at the point of assembling those superior flavor traits into a single line. Different jurisdictions have different regulations on the genetic modification of food. In many places, combining genes across species is banned. But in most of North America, South America, and Japan, you can tweak existing genes with CRISPR. In the European Union, however, that's still considered genetic modification and is also banned. Though now that the UK is officially out of the EU, the BBC notes that they're considering using gene editing on livestock and food crops. Not all changes have to be done with gene editing, however, a lot of the changes that some of these gene editing projects are seeking to make could be done with good old traditional breeding. It would just take way longer. Haven Baker, co-founder of Pearwise, which uses CRISPR to create new fruit varieties, says traditional breeding could take up to a century and a half. So, some are trying to combine the two. Quoting again, Organic seed firm Row 7 runs breeding programs to develop new and better-tasting produce. Its seed suppliers use traditional cross-pollination techniques along with genomic selection, the ability to examine molecular genetic markers across the plant's whole genome, to predict traits such as flavor with reasonable accuracy. In addition, it has a network of 150 chefs and farmers that evaluate its work. One of its flagship products is badger flame beet, bred to be eaten raw and sweet without being earthy. This variety would have gotten lost were it not for the advocacy of chefs and growers. It's expanding our understanding of what a beet can be, introducing new opportunities for exploration, says Chief Operating Officer Charlotte Douglas, end quote. Whatever method is used, it's likely we'll see some interesting varieties popping up over the coming years, like kale that's extra nutritious but not as bitter, cherries without pits, and seedless blackberries with more consistent taste. And hey, maybe we'll even get naturally grown grapples. Remember those? Apparently they were just made by dunking Fuji apples in grape flavoring. What a letdown. So back in May, I talked about how the price of lumber was soaring, but how mills were having trouble keeping up with demand and all of the ripple effects in different directions because of that. I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes in case you want to re-listen. Well, now the lumber bubble has apparently burst, and some think it could foretell what's to come for the economy in general. A refresher on the situation, though, quoting The Washington Post. When the pandemic first hit, sawmills furloughed workers and cut production to prepare for a punishing recession. But while housing starts fell to their lowest level since the financial crisis a decade before, they rebounded by summer, catching sawmills with low inventories and COVID-thinned crews. Panic buying set in as consumers remodeling their houses for the work-from-home era rushed to avoid being caught short. End quote. But now, demand has changed again and prices are starting to drop. Quoting the Wall Street Journal, futures for July delivery ended Tuesday at $1,009 per thousand board feet, down 41% from the record of $1,711 reached in early May. Futures have declined 14 of the past 16 trading days. The rapid decline suggests a bubble that has burst, and the question is how low lumber prices will fall. Even after tumbling, lumber futures remain nearly three times what is typical for this time of year. Lumber producers and traders expect that prices will remain relatively high due to the strong housing market, but that the supply bottlenecks and frenzied buying that characterized the economy's reopening and sent prices to multiples of the old all-time highs are winding down. End quote. Just a couple of months ago, people were hoarding wood because it was so hard to come by, and now businesses that would usually be buying are selling from their own stockpiles. As people return to other aspects of their lives, they're spending less time on home improvement projects. And meanwhile, sawmills have been able to bring their staffs and equipment back up to full force. Quoting again, executives from lumber producer Poltac Delta Corporation said they expect lumber to trade in a range of 700 to 800 through next year. That is still more than the pre-pandemic record of $639, and is based on their estimation of the price that mills in British Columbia need to break even sawing North America's most expensive logs. The stock market is assuming even lower lumber prices ahead. Analysts with BMO Capital Markets recently calculated that the share prices of three Canadian firms that have become the biggest sawyers in the southern Pinelands have priced in expectations of $447 lumber next year. That would be a little more expensive than normal, but more in line with historical prices, end quote. And from the Washington Post, quote, The abrupt turnabout offers lessons that are likely to guide policymakers as they run the economy at full throttle, accepting what they regard as a temporary bout of inflation in hopes of generating more than 10 million new jobs. Lumber's wild gyrations show that today's hiring troubles and shipping delays reflect short-term reopening kinks, not a lasting shift that will push prices higher and higher. Our expectation is that these high inflation readings that we are seeing now will start to abate, and it'll be like the lumber experience, U.S. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell told reporters on Wednesday. Prices that have moved up really quickly because of the shortages and bottlenecks and the like, they should stop going up. And at some point, they, in some cases, should actually go down, and we did see that in the case of lumber, end quote. Powell and White House economists think the relative chaos of the lumber market is a decent example of what we can expect in other sectors and for the economy overall. As the Washington Post points out, last year wasn't a typical recession. People stopped spending in certain areas, like dining and traveling, but increased spending in others, like home office and entertainment and remodeling, or buying homes. So shortages may be short-lived, and surges will cool down, but maybe not completely back to pre-pandemic levels. It's tough to predict anything right now, though. For the overall economy, we will still need to wait and see. But as far as lumber goes, well, you can at least stop hoarding it for now. So here's something I'd never really thought about before. How do astronauts do their laundry? So much attention is given to how they make food and go to the bathroom, how they sleep and exercise. But what about cleaning their clothes? It turns out the answer is very simple. They don't. Quoting Fast Company, Clothes take up valuable storage space needed for food and other essentials. Not to mention that the average cost of taking a pound of items to space is about $10,000, says retired NASA astronaut and engineer Leland Melvin. So when astronauts are space-bound for months or years at a time, they have to recycle clothing, switching out shirts and shorts, not to mention undergarments, only every five to seven days. We don't have the upmass to keep throwing away our clothing, Melvin says, using the term that means the capacity of the vessel to carry items to space. Used clothing is then usually returned from the International Space Station to Earth in an expendable cargo vehicle, or burned up in the atmosphere in a capsule full of trash— Some have gotten more creative, a scientist once reported using an old pair of underwear as a source of nutrients for growing his tomato and basil plants, end quote. And that last one is true. NASA reports that ISS Expedition 6 science officer Don Petit sewed some of his used underwear into a sphere and covered it with Russian space toilet paper, a kind of double-layer woven gauze, as a stand-in to grow some seeds that he'd brought on board because, well, they didn't have any soil. And it turned out to work. So if you're out of soil and desperately need to grow some plants, wrap them in underwear, I guess? But wait, there is more. Russian scientists once theorized that they could use their used underwear to power the spacecraft, quoting NASA. The scientists on board space station Mir began designing a system that would use bacteria to digest the astronauts cotton and paper underpants. The researchers said that it was even possible that the methane gas given off when the bacteria ate the underwear could be used to help power the spacecraft. The system would even be able to be used to dispose of some other waste on the station as well. And while the system was never completed for use on Mir, researchers say that it could take up to a decade to find the right combination of bacteria, it may be an option for people living in space in the future. End quote, And I will note that this is from an article published in 2003, so it's about time we check back in with the Russian Space Agency on their underwear rocket. But if they haven't cracked that one yet, the good news is another laundry solution is in the works, and it's sponsored by Tide. NASA Tide, according to Fast Company, will use much less water than a standard wash cycle and be fully degradable so that it's compliant with NASA's closed-loop water system, aka the need to recycle all water products, including urine and sweat. So Tide-branded space detergent really doesn't sound so bad after hearing that. Quoting again from Fast Company, Tide plans to experiment with a variety of solutions, explains Amy Kreibold, brand VP for N.A. Laundry at Procter & Gamble. First, for the Lunar and Martian modules, and on the surface of the Moon and Mars, Tide aims to send a washer-dryer machine that would work in low-gravity conditions. Astronauts would use NASA Tide and likely about four gallons of recyclable water for a 10-pound load. The second solution would be for the flights to and from the International Space Station, where gravity is much weaker, and would likely need solutions involving low or no water and no spinning appliances. This could potentially throw them off their trajectory, Crabill says, These laundry experiments will begin on the International Space Station from 2022 onward and also involve trials of TIDE to-go pens and wipes for waterless stain removal. The idea is that they'll bring all their learnings back to Earth to ultimately reduce water and energy usage for the estimated 25 billion loads of laundry completed each year in North America. It's part of TIDE's Ambition 2030 sustainability goals announced in March, under which it's committed to have greenhouse gas emissions at its plants by 2030 and to find product and educational solutions for less wasteful washing, end quote. Less wasteful washing Earthside is definitely something we need to continue to perfect and find better solutions for, so despite how much NASA Tide sounds like an astronaut-themed version of the detergent to get kids interested in doing chores, I am fully on board for this experiment. As Aga Orlick, Senior Vice President at Procter & Gamble North America Fabricare, put it in the NASA Tide press release, quote, "...humanity has reached a pivotal point where, on one hand, we're on the exciting cusp of space colonization, and on the other, facing a critical period where action must be taken now to save the planet we all call home." End quote. And that is a good point about our upcoming longer space missions as well. For all of the aforementioned reasons, it will be even more difficult to pack enough clothes or get rid of used ones on substantially longer missions. But also, as retired astronaut Melvin explained, it's an important part of mental and physical health for astronauts. Something exceptionally important when you're talking about a mission that stretches on for months and years. Quoting Melvin, all these little micro things affect your way of living and being in this remote environment. End quote. If you're a fan of What We Do in the Shadows, or really anything by Teka Watiti or Jermaine Clement, then it is my duty to inform you of an excellent show making its US debut next month. It's called Wellington Paranormal, and it follows a duo of officers in New Zealand who work on cases of the supernatural and paranormal. The two main characters actually appeared a few times in What We Do in the Shadows, and the overall vibe is exactly what you'd expect from Clement and Watiti. A new trailer just today. Link in the show notes. And the most exciting part of this is that the show is actually already on season four in New Zealand. So you can dive in knowing that there is plenty more to come. It'll debut on July 11th on the CW. More info in the show notes. But that is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kaki.org. I am Jackson Bird and I will talk to you again tomorrow.